We're glad you're here for our third session of the amazing book of Daniel, and it is just that, amazing. Let's have a word of prayer as we begin. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your blessings and mercies. And Lord, as we enter into this text, we pray for the Spirit of God to guide us, to lead us. Give us understanding and wisdom. And Lord, help us to see Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen. As we enter the third chapter, we pick up with the story of King Nebuchadnezzar once again. Now remember, the first four chapters of the book of Daniel deal with Nebuchadnezzar. And then we move on afterwards. And so we find that in this story of Nebuchadnezzar, first let's look back at chapter 2. And we find that Nebuchadnezzar understood the dream and the interpretation of the image in Daniel 2. But he refused to acknowledge it as being true. He didn't want it to be true. He also had to consolidate his power after a serious rebellion. Now, the text doesn't bring this out, but history does. About this time, there was a rebellion that was going on against Nebuchadnezzar. And as a result, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to unite his empire. Thus, this may very well be the reason why he had all these administrators from all over the empire come together. And his purpose was to unite them. And so we find that Nebuchadnezzar erects this big image that we see. Now look at Daniel 3.1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was three cubits, the breadth thereof six cubits. And he set it up on the plains of Dora in the province of Babylon. Several interesting things here. First off, it mentions the plains of Dora. The plains of Dora, scholars have pretty much connected that during the time of Babel with the land of Shinar. Land of Shinar and the plains of Dora were very likely the same area. And in some languages, that area is still called Dora today, some of the Mideastern languages. And we find also that there's a comparison between what was happening back at the Tower of Babel and what is happening now with Nebuchadnezzar. First off, you had, back at the Tower of Babel, you had a king who was also a spiritual leader. So was Nebuchadnezzar. You find there that he had built a big tower under Nimrod especially, had built a big tower and tried to consolidate his power. So is Nebuchadnezzar with this image. We find that in the Tower of Babel experience, it was in defiance of God. God had told them to scatter. Instead, they were consolidating. God promised he wouldn't destroy the earth again by water, but they didn't trust God. And so they built this tower to save themselves. Here we find that Nebuchadnezzar had already been shown 
that his kingdom was only the head of gold in that image. But that didn't satisfy him. He wanted his kingdom to last a thousand years, you see. He is actually defying God. Now, it doesn't tell it in the English, but in the original languages, some of the very phrases that Nebuchadnezzar uses were also phrases that were used back at the time of the Tower of Babel. And so there are many comparisons between what's happening there, what happened at Babel, and interestingly enough, will take place again at the end of time. At the end of time, you will find a strong religious leader. He will also be a a king or a ruler. You find that he will uh, try to unite people under his religio-political system. He will be attacking the commandment of God, just like they did at Babel, just like they did here in Babylon. It is called Babylon because it was religious confusion. And so we find what happened at, at uh, the Tower of Babel, what happened here in chapter 3, and what happens in the end times in Revelation, there are parallels between them. And if you did not bow down to the image, there was a death penalty attached, you see. And so it will be at the end of time for those who do not obey and go along with the image to the beast, there will be a death penalty attached. Also, it's interesting that here in chapter 3, those who defied the king and did not go along, they were cast into the fiery furnace, right? Did the Lord rapture them away before they got into the furnace? No. They had to go through the time of trouble. But notice that God went through the time of trouble with them and brought them out unscathed by it. And so we find here that there are many parallels with the, uh, what's happening here in the time of the end. Now notice this statue. Three score cubits and the breadth thereof was six cubits. Do you realize that that is very odd that it was such proportions? This thing would be a bean pole. I mean, if a cubit, basically what this is saying, this is nine feet wide and 90 feet tall. Now, that isn't much of a, a representation of a man. It would look like, you know, big, big bean pole standing there. Well, there's reason to believe that this was not just the image itself. The Statue of Liberty, I don't know the exact dimensions of it. I have it at home, but I don't recall it. The Statue of Liberty is in proportion to a, a human being but it's very tall, about tall as this uh, image, if not taller. But why is it still in proportion? Because it's on a platform. It's sitting on top of a, a building. And there's reason to believe that the, this image was actually built on a similar structure so that it would be high enough up 
that it could be seen all around, for miles around. And of course, being all gold, it would glitter in the sunlight. And people would be able to see it from afar. So notice, if a cubit is 18 inches, we find that 60 cubits would be 90 feet, and 6 cubits would be 9 feet. And so the dimensions, the description is out of proportion to a man. Therefore, it must have been on a pedestal, like the Statue of Liberty, so that it could be seen from a distance. Notice verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Now notice, Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. That is similar language to what was used back at the Tower of Babel, you see. And in Hebrew poetry, if something's mentioned here, and similar wording is used over there, those two thoughts are connected. No matter where they're located in the Bible, they're connected. Remember we talked about in Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning God. And then way over in the New Testament, the beginning of the Gospel of John, it says, in the beginning, the Word. Right? In the beginning was the Word. Those two thoughts are connected by the in the beginning, you see, showing that the Word is God. And so we find that similar language is used here. And there's a number of places, which I won't mention, where this pops up. Notice also that he's calling together all the princes, and as he lists these uh, administrators, they're in a descending order of importance. So he calls together first the, you know, the upper crust, and then he works his way down. And they were all, and notice that word all, because that in itself is an interesting statement. And look at verse uh, 3. Then the princess, and he repeats the same wording. Now again, in Hebrew literature, when something is repeated, it's a sign of emphasis. So the very fact that he's repeating all these officers again is showing that it was important that they all be there. Why? If indeed the historians are correct, and Nebuchadnezzar was trying to ward off a rebellion. Now, don't forget, it wasn't too long ago that he assumed the throne. After he took Daniel into captivity, while Daniel was walking around the Fertile Crescent, Nebuchadnezzar had to make a beeline across the desert on a horse to get back to Babylon to assume the throne before other uh, relatives or... or um, hopefuls, were able to seize it from him. Now, it appears that there might have been a rebellion going on at this time, and this is the reason why he's unifying them. Then the princes, the governors, and the captains, and the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces, that's where Daniel's friends come in, the rulers of the provinces, remember? Okay, were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Apparently, it took a while to build this up. 
it was not uncommon that for the Babylonians to have ovens around, especially because they made things out of brick. They've discovered bricks with the name Nebuchadnezzar stamped on the back of them. They're that old. And so they made things out of brick. And therefore, they had a brick oven there. And this thing, if it is standing on a pedestal, the pedestal may have been made out of brick. If so, there was a brick oven right beside them. For two reasons. Number one, because they needed the bricks. You know, it would be more efficient to have it nearby. But secondly, the Babylonians were known to burn their enemies. To denigrate an enemy was to burn them up. Now, isn't it interesting that there is a religio-political power during the Middle Ages, anyone who opposed that power was burned at the stake. You see, this concept of fire is associated very much with the way the Babylonians operated. And so as we look at this, we can see some more comparisons. And they're all set. Everybody's there from the whole empire except What is missing in this whole chapter? What? Daniel. Daniel's not mentioned anywhere in this chapter. Shadrach is, Meshach is, Abednego is, but Daniel's not mentioned. Why? Well, good question. Historians have been, and theologians have been debating that through the centuries. Could it be, well, he could have been sick, but Nebuchadnezzar probably would have put him on a, a stretcher and taken him out. It's more likely that either Nebuchadnezzar excused him from it because he didn't want to be embarrassed by him, or number two, he had sent Daniel out of the empire on business. In plain words, he got him out of town while he did this. And while the cat's away, the mouse will play, Right? And so, if he could get Daniel out of the country, then he could do this. But it said all were there. So what the reason is, we really don't know. But he forgot about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Either that or he thought he had sufficiently brainwashed them that they would give in. Look at verse 4. Then and Harold cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye heard the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the saxophone, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. Now, first off, let's talk about music. Music is very much important in worship. Um, it was back then, too. You've got to remember that Satan is a master musician. He led the choirs of heaven. And interestingly enough, music bypasses your conscious mind and goes right to your subconscious mind. I remember that, uh, I forget where it was, I don't know if it was a Moody film or what, it showed 
somebody going up a pair of stairs. Ta-dum, 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 ta-dum. They get up near the top. Ta-dum, ta-dum. Fling the door open and happy birthday to you. It just seemed out of place, didn't it? It changes your mind entirely. You're expecting a mystery and all of a sudden it's happy birthday. You see, and the devil knows this. He knows how to get directly to uh, a person's inner being, his soul. In plain words, music is important. That's why in many of the services of today, the contemporary services, you see people, you know, they're standing and waving. I went to one in uh, Detroit. No, it wasn't either. It was Denver. And the people were standing up, jumping up and down, moving their hands back and forth. That's worship? I mean, there were a couple of thousand people anyway there. Might have been, I think the congregation had something like 10,000. And they were, they were going back and forth, chanting over and over again the same words. And what was it? They, they weren't thinking. They were being hypnotically uh, involved in this. We find that music, even in, in our services, they can be, it can be uh, the real jazzy rock type music, or it can be very sedate. But you see, music enhances worship. And we've got to be careful that we don't make the music itself the worship. It enhances worship. You don't want to drag the music out. Oh, I hate it when I hear a pianist or an organist. Let's all sing together. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. You know, you feel like falling asleep before you get to the end of the first verse. And then there's the others that goes, you know, and have you jumping up and down in the aisles. Well, that's the other extreme. But God wants to get to the heart as well as to the mind. And so we find here, Nebuchadnezzar knew how music took place. And in the context of this, in the original setting, this is actually a worship service that's going on. We don't get that in the English. We just say, oh, we made a statue and everybody bowed down to it because the king said so. This is also in the context of a worship What was Nebuchadnezzar doing? Number one, he was defying the God of heaven. First off, he was setting himself up as God, but he was also attacking the second commandment, which says we shouldn't bow down to images, right? So notice that he was putting himself in the place of God, attacking the first commandment. He's also attacking the second commandment. We find at the end of time we will find that there's a commandment also that's attacked. Right? And in this case, it's the fourth commandment. You see, the devil doesn't really care which commandment he gets you on as long as you don't keep them all. Because the identifying mark of God's people in the last days are those who keep the commandments of God. That means all of them, all ten. Not nine and a half or eight or whatever. They're not the ten suggestions. And then they have the faith of Jesus and the faith in Jesus. The kind of faith Jesus had and they trust in Jesus. 
And so we find that these are identifying marks of God's people. And that's what he's attacking here. Verse 6. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Now, I don't know how many people were there, but the plain of Dora is quite big. And there could have been hundreds, if not thousands, of people there. And he's waiting for them all to bow down. Therefore, verse 7, therefore, and remember whenever you see a therefore, it's picking up on what was just said previously. And it's bringing it to a conclusion. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sacrament, the uh, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Now notice that the whole world, the whole Babylonian world was involved in this. At the end of time, we find that the end time Babylon is going to affect the whole world and try to get the whole world to cooperate with his agenda. And notice here, too, that uh, when they all had to worship at the same time, and the image was all of gold, he did not want to admit that there would be another kingdom that would follow him. He knew what he was doing. He was openly defying God. And so, verse 8, Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near, and they accused the Jews. They spake and said unto the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Lie. They Remember, they, they were, a bunch of them were rebelling against him. And by the way, when it says all the nations were gathered, I doubt every single soul under the whole earth was gathered there. They were probably the officials representing all the nations of the earth. Okay, because those are the ones that uh, he was concerned about, that they didn't try to break away and set up their own dynasties. Okay, thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the saxbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. Now see here, it's a worship service that's going on. The one thing that the devil wants is worship. And that's the one thing we can't give him. Because to worship him would be sin. Look at verse 11. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Now, your majesty, didn't you make that decree? Yep, yep, that's what I said. And then they throw it in his face. Look at verse 12. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Aha, this tells a lot. Remember, oh, live forever, king. We love you. Listen, you're the one who put these rascals over us. What what are they doing? They have just flattered him to set him up, and then they point their finger at him. We find this later on coming up in chapters ahead. They use a similar thing. And 
Remember, we are loyal Babylonians, and you put these Hebrew captives over us. I can almost imagine their tone of voice. And he names them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now remember, these are their Babylonian names. Their Hebrew names are what? You remember? What? Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Okay? And he says, you put these over us. These men, O, o king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Nebuchadnezzar was on the spot. You know what? He put himself on that spot. If he hadn't defied God, he wouldn't be in that position. I can't help but think this morning, we were talking about King uh, Herod. And how King Herod had a birthday party. And he called all of his officials in. And he got drunk. And that's when Salome did her dance. And he said, I'll give you whatever you want. She goes, checks with mom and comes back and said, I want the head of John the Baptist. Well, Herod liked John the Baptist. Even though John the Baptist was telling him his sins... He still respected John the Baptist and he was afraid to kill John the Baptist. But then he said, look, I can't make a fool of myself in front of my friends. But you see, if he hadn't gotten drunk, if he hadn't put himself in that foolish position, he really got caught in his own trap. And that's the same thing with Nebuchadnezzar here. He got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. And then verse 13 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Now, it's interesting that in his rage, notice that, Nebuchadnezzar was a very intelligent man. Remember, he's the one that gave Daniel and his three friends their final exam when they graduated from the University of Babylon after three years. He gave them the final exam. And here we find that Nebuchadnezzar also is a tyrant. He had a hot temper. Well, we found that in chapter 2. He was going to burn down the wise men's, uh, I mean the uh, astrologers' uh, houses and turn them into dunghills and kill their families and everything else. And he would have done it too. But it says in his rage and fury, he called these three men. Now, let's give old Nebuchadnezzar a bit of credit here. He didn't just take the word of his counselors. He checked it out for himself. How many times do we act on rumors? You see, we make decisions on rumors without actually checking it out for ourselves. And here, he checks it out. And they came to him. So, Daniel's friends prove that they trust God. Then Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury he commanded and to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they brought them. Look at verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true what I heard? Is this rumor correct? Now oftentimes we should double check and make sure that what we heard was true. Go right to the source. 
That's what the scripture tells us. Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Shame on you. I've been so good to you boys. You know, I, you were slaves. You were, you were hostages and captives. And I sent you to school. And I set you up as governors. Now, if I let you guys get away with this, I'll have a mass rebellion on my hands. And that's what I'm trying to avoid, you see. Now, at the Tower of Babel, God told the people to scatter. But what did uh, Nimrod and the others do? They wanted to bring them together under one language and one government and have a one-world empire. Nebuchadnezzar's doing the same thing. He's taking people from different languages and, and nations, bringing them together, and we will have one religion. And you fellas are going along. You're not cooperating after I've been so nice to you. And so he speaks directly to them. Now notice in verse 15. Now if you be ready, he says, look, I'm going to give you a second chance. Maybe you didn't understand. Uh, look over there and you'll see Lord's Welk. He's directing, he's directing the band over there. And when he says at a one and a two and a, you all bow down together, okay? And so he says, now, if you're ready, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the saxophone, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of the, uh, the burning fiery furnace. And here's where he challenges God. Notice this. And who is that God that will deliver you out of my hands? There's no God more powerful than I am. Well, hey, wait a minute. Didn't he just tell Daniel in chapter 2 that your God is a God of gods and a king of kings who's above all kings? Now he's saying, I'm above God. Who's going to deliver you out of my hands? Uh Uh-oh, he's crossed the line now. He's challenging God, and God doesn't like that. Notice what it says in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Now, I want you to understand, they were respectful in the way they addressed him. Just like Daniel was respectful in the way he addressed the king. Even though Daniel stood firm for principle, he still was polite. He was a gentleman. And these men were used to being raised in in a court. They were in the court back in Jerusalem. And now they're in the Babylonian court. So being courtiers, they, they knew how to behave. And they were very polite in answering the king. But they were also firm. And... They said to him, Your Majesty, if, if you want Lord's Welk to play the band again and toot the horns, uh, that's fine. But, and they said it nicer than I did, basically what they said is, we're still not going to bow down to your stinky old image. That's not in the original language. I kind of edited that a little bit. Notice what they said. If it be so, our God, 
whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. Now notice, they says, our God is able to deliver us. We're not questioning God's ability to deliver us. But if he chooses not to, we're still not going to bow down. And we are not careful. What it says, we're not careful, it doesn't mean they're, they're slipshod. It means we are not caring for our own well-being. We've given thought to this. It's not some off-the-cuff thing. And then look verse 18. But if not, if God wants to save us, he can. How many times in your life did you have an illness? Did you have uh, a situation where you found yourself maybe in a financial situation or even a loved one who was sick and you were praying for him and say, Lord, please heal him. And the Lord didn't. Could you honestly say, Lord, if it be to your greater glory to heal him in the resurrection, so be it. If it's to your greater glory to heal him now, please do so. But if it's to your greater glory to heal them in the resurrection, so be it. That's what they're saying. You say, not my will, your will be done. Didn't somebody else say that? In a garden somewhere? Not my will, but your will be done? This is the attitude that's carrying over on their part. They were submissive to the God of heaven. And it says, we won't bow down and worship your image. Now, Daniel's friends had to go through that fiery furnace. They were protected. A lot of times we hear television preachers saying, you just pray hard enough and the Lord will deliver you from this trial. Who says so? It may be that the Lord will want you to go through that first, not because he's a fiend and likes to see people suffer, but it may be that he will let you go through that, but he won't let you go through it alone. He will let you set an example for others. And it would be to his greater glory. Notice what it says in verse 19. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury. Now, wait a minute. Then was Nebuchadnezzar a little bit miffed. Or a little ticked off. He was already furious when he brought them in. But now, he says, you guys are sassing me. And I don't like to be sassed. And so he was full of fury. And the form of his visage, that means his countenance, his face. I bet his face was redder than the furnace was. He was ready to blow his cork. And his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and he commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. It was already operating at full, full heat. He says, stoke it up seven times more. Well, the number seven is completion. And play words, take it up. I don't care if you have to melt the oven. Get it really hot. He's using intimidation here, to say the least. But he's the type that would carry it through. Look at verse 20. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the fiery furnace. 
Now, a lot of times when we look at that, it looks like, well, you know, they had a little cord and they tied his, their hands and their feet and they walked them over to the furnace and they went one, two, three, whoop. Uh, that isn't exactly how the Babylonians did it. Notice it said he took the strongest, the mightiest men, and when they wrapped them up, they had all their clothes on. He deliberately left their clothes on, even their hats. Why? Because that helped to fuel the fire, right? Their clothes would burn. They'd burn before the ropes would. And they probably wrapped them up like a snake all the way down, you know, like cordwood. And the Babylonians, the way they used to throw them into the fiery furnace, they didn't say one at the head and one at the feet and wee. What they did was they would have several of the men lined up like this. They'd put them up over their heads because they didn't want to get too close to that flame because that thing was very, very hot. And so they would put it up over their heads and they'd run over and they'd throw them. One, two, three, boom, and they all threw them together. So when these men went in, they went in probably head first and went thud on the floor in there. But the interesting thing is, as they threw them in, as they went in, it caused a backlash of flames. You know, uh, the old-fashioned stoves, you open them up, and you throw a log in, and boom, some of the flames will come out at you. And they came out and cooked them right on the spot. And so these mighty men found themselves burned. Look at verse 21. Then these men were bound in their coats, their hosen, that means their stockings, their socks, or whatever they had on, and their hats, and their outer garments, and they were cast into the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, remember another therefore. They're drawing a conclusion on what they just said here. Okay, therefore, because the king's command was urgent, and that the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were the ones who were killed. And then verse 23. There, Nebuchadnezzar got rid of them. His problem is solved. Now everybody's going to bow down to him. When Lawrence Wilkes sounds the music again, everybody's going to bow down. So he thought. But notice. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished. That means astonished. Now, don't forget, he probably had uh, his throne, or at least a seat, that was sitting so that he could see right into the furnace from where he was. And all of a sudden, he stands up in amazement, and he began to speak, and he said unto his counselors, let let me get this straight, fellas. Didn't we throw three men in there? Yeah, you did. Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king, yes, we did. And then he said, Look. He answered and he said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking around in the midst of the fire. 
and they're not heard. They have no heard. And the form is of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, the rope apparently burned off of them, but they're walking around. I wonder what they were talking about. Maybe one of them is saying, we forgot the marshmallows. I don't know what they were saying in there, you know. But I don't think that was it. I think they were, they were amazed. And there in there, it says, one like the Son of God, the Son of Man. Now, how did he know the Son of God? Could it have been that Daniel had told him about it? Now, some say, well, this was an angel in there. So what if God sent an angel? But we have reason to believe that this was the divine Son of God that was in there with them. Protecting them. Notice, here they are in this fiery furnace and God protects them. It reminds me of Noah. Noah was in that box with those smelly animals floating on the water. Do you think that that box, that ark, really is what protected those people? I don't think so. I think it was the hand of God that was protecting them. The box was the container, but it was God who was delivering them. And here, in the fire, it was God who was protecting them, even though they were in the oven. And how Nebuchadnezzar knew this was the Son of God, I don't know. Could it have been that when he saw that rock that came down that was cut out without hands, could it have been that he might have had uh, some sort of an insight? I'm sure Daniel told him what it was, but how did he know what he looked like except for his description? Now, I want you to notice something about this whole story. Number one is that this is not a vision. In Daniel 2, it was a vision, right? He had a dream. This is not a dream. This is history, a historical fact, you see. And Nebuchadnezzar had the dream originally and had a prophet interpret it. But here he didn't have a vision, a dream. And he himself is interpreting it. He himself is telling what he's seeing. You'll find that the book of Daniel has an equal number of stories and an equal number of prophecies. Why? Usually we study the prophecies and give the stories to the children. But that isn't what the intent of the book is. The purpose of the prophecy is to tell us what's coming. The purpose of the stories are to tell us how to respond when these things happen, you see. And so this story, instead of giving it to the children, let's study it again. Because if indeed there's a Babylon in the last days, will there be a group of people who will be faithful to God? Is there a group of people who will not violate the commandments of God, who will stand fast, and what will happen? They will have to go through a time of persecution and maybe even go through a death penalty. But the Lord will go with them. 
because of their faith. So we see the prophecy tells us what's coming, but the story tells us how we should respond to it. What kind of men and women ought we to be knowing these things, you see? And so as we look on, we find that Daniel and his friends, because they went through this experience, God delivers them out of it. Look at verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace, and he spake and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God. Notice, here he is again. At the start of this chapter, he wanted to be the Most High God. He wanted, who's the God who's going to deliver you from me? Now he's saying, you servants of the Most High God, who has delivered you from me. And he says, come forth and come hither. Well, they're still walking around in there. They would have been walking around in there for the next hundred years if he hadn't told them to come out. They were enjoying it. They were in the fellowship of the Son of God in there. And finally, he says, come out. And so, then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth from the midst of the fire. Now notice, the princes, the governors, the the captains, and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men. They saw what happened upon whose body the fire had no power, nor was there a hair of their head singed. Did you ever get too close to a fire? And, oh man, I remember one time when I was a kid, I was playing with some toy soldiers that I had, and I dug a pit, and I was pretending that it was a bomb had dropped there. I put my soldiers in it, and I put some gasoline in there. And I stood back, and I wanted to see it blow those men to pieces. And I took a match, and I threw it. And the match went near the edge of the hole, but it didn't go all the way in. But I didn't know where it went. So I walked over, and I looked down. And just about that time, the fumes of the gas met the flame of the match. And as I was looking down, boom! Well, I'll tell you. The hair in my nose, my eyebrows were singed, my hair was singed. Just from a little poof like that, you can imagine. Not a hair was singed on their body. And as you look further, neither was their cloak uh, changed. And there wasn't even the smell of smoke on them. Verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had sent his angel and delivered his servants that trust in him and have changed the king's words and yielded their bodies that they may not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Now, interestingly in here, it says, who has sent his angel... That's why some say, well, this was an angel that was in there. Ah, yes, perhaps. But it also said it was the Son of God who was in there. Well, the righteous are called the sons and daughters of God. So that term could apply. But why do we believe it was the Son of God, the Lord himself? 
You've got to remember that the scripture also says, refers to Jesus as an angel. It, and now I don't mean a created fluffy winged one. I'm talking about the fact that he is a messenger from God. The New Testament tells us that. Even refers to him as an angel. But why? Because an angel is a messenger. And Jesus came with a unique message from God. He's also called an apostle. The apostle Jesus. The apostle of whom? The apostle of the Father, you see. And so, a lot of times people can get hung up on this word angel. But in reality, there's more evidence to expect that that was indeed the Son of God. And notice verse 29. Therefore, I make a decree. You know, Nebuchadnezzar loved to make decrees. That was his favorite pastime, I think. Especially religious decrees. Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation, and, and language that speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Now, bless his heart, I think he meant well, but he has a little bit to learn about tactics, right? Remember, forced religion is always bad religion, you see. And if you need the sword of the government to enforce your religion, there's something wrong with your religion, you see. God honored Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not because they were forced to worship him. Matter of fact, they were being forced to worship the image. But because they chose voluntarily to worship him. That's why he honored them. And in the last days, those are the kind of people that God will honor. But you see, the Babylonian power says, no, we will force you to worship our way. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he's still got a little bit of worldview that needs to be changed. And bless his heart, the Lord hasn't given up on him, even though he still wants to chop people up if they don't worship the way he chooses to have them worship. When Jesus comes back again, he's coming back again for those who love him. That has to be our motive. I... I actually heard one preacher tell me that, well, you've got to preach an eternally burning fire of hell so that people will choose heaven because they, they want to escape the hell fire. Well, my friends, I want to go to heaven because I love the Lord. You know? Not to escape the flames, although I don't especially want to burn. I prefer to be where I'm more comfortable for the rest of eternity. But the point of the matter is our motive has to be a motive of love. And so we've got to be careful. We can do what we think is the right thing, but for the wrong motives. And so this is where we end this chapter. Notice it said, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. He raised them even higher than they were before. And he told all of the, the uh, administrators and everybody, 
you guys leave these three men alone or you'll have to reckon with me. And those who were wanting to put him down, them down because they were foreigners, they had to back off. And so we've got to give Nebuchadnezzar what credit we can. But when we get into the next chapter, we'll see where the influence of those who are faithful, Daniel and his three friends, rub off on the king. And notice, too, in this chapter that these three friends of Daniel, who were his prayer partners in Daniel 2, they didn't need Daniel. They had developed a faith whereby they could stand on their own two feet. Isn't that what we want for our children? You know, don't depend on the old-time religion. Good enough for mama, good enough for daddy, it's good enough for me. Uh Uh-uh. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. Every generation has to choose him for themselves. And the time of testing will come, and you will have to stand on your own two feet spiritually, you on yours, you on yours, etc. The faith that we have developed, if faith and character are not transferable now, they will not be transferable in the time of trouble. And so the Lord is asking us day by day, to have the kind of faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had when they said, Your Majesty, with all due respect, we are not careful for what we say. You may do whatever you wish, but we've given thought to this, and we will stand with the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so in summary, Nebuchadnezzar knew the image in Daniel 2, But he didn't accept that Babylon was going to fall. He wanted it to last forever. Thus, he made an image, all of gold. Secondly, the king was attacking the Ten Commandments in requiring image worship. Thirdly, we find that Daniel's friends needed to develop a faith of their own and to stand up for what they believed. In the last days, the people of God will experience similar persecutions. God did not deliver the believers from the fiery furnace, but he went through it with them, and he brought them out safely, thus disputing the secret rapture. The secret rapture says that God takes away the people so they don't have to go through the time of trouble, time of tribulation. But here, they went through it, and he delivers them out of it. Today, we need a personal faith worth dying for, and even more so, a faith worth living for. May that be yours. Let's have just a word of prayer before our quiz. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful, not only for the example of Daniel, but for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're thankful that they had determined in their hearts, they had purposed in their hearts, that they wouldn't care to save their own lives, but they wanted to do your greater will. And because of their faithfulness and their faith, you went with them through the the challenges that were before them. 
and you brought them out stronger and more influential than they were before. Father, help us to be faithful. We know before us there's a great time of trouble, but every day in our lives there are little times of trouble that come to us. Help us to stand right for principle. Help us to stand strong for the integrity of your word and our faith in it. And Lord, deliver us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.